Welcome to Hematopoiesis, an ASH trainee podcast made by trainees for trainees. Today's episode is the second installment of the Bench to Bedside series. Dr. Manuel Espinosa will discuss financial toxicity with his guests. Good day. My name is Manuel Espinosa. I'm a hematology oncology fellow at Indiana University. And today I will be talking about financial toxicity and what does it mean for our hematologic cancer patients. To this end, I have interviewed four experts in the field, including Dr. Aaron Mitchell, a oncologist and public health research and Memorial Sloan Kettering, Dr. Yusuf Safar, an oncologist and financial toxicity researcher at Duke University, Dr. Aju Matthew, an oncology consultant from Kerala, who initially practiced in Kentucky in the United States, and Dr. Nandita Kera, malignant hematologist and stem cell transplant specialist at Mayo Clinic in Arizona. The year 2021 is an exciting time to be an oncologist. We have more tools to you know, fight this disease than ever before. Our patients are living longer and better lives than in previous decades. However, with this, there has been a drawback, particularly in the United States. We have seen the prices of the drugs that we usually prescribe skyrocket and new therapies that come into the market also come at really steep prices. This has led to our patients experiencing financial hardship or financial toxicity, whatever you want to call it, as a product of the disease, you know, either directly through direct costs or indirectly through missed work. It affects their credit score. It can affect their capacity to work afterwards or to be subject to loans, mortgages, and things of that nature. I wanted to ask you, Dr. Mitchell, how important do you think this, this is? And do you think trainees should be educated to identify it? And can we do something about it, not only as trainees, but as practitioners, as clinicians? Mm-hmm. So it's hugely important. In my clinical day-to-day, the thing that often, the thought that often comes to mind is that my interactions with my patients and the commonality that financial aspects of care and the financial toxicity that the patient is experiencing, the commonality with which that becomes part of my day-to-day interactions is completely out of sync with what we know from the data in terms of how often patients are experiencing this. Like we know large portions of patients, especially those that are Medicare age because of some inadequacies of coverage in Medicare Part D drug benefits. I'm not sure if we'll have more time to talk about that in particular, but that's a particularly high risk patient population, which is primarily the prostate cancer population. So I know like in broad terms and aggregate, a huge number of my patients are experiencing this it rarely, if ever, comes up. The most that I ever do in my clinical practice to try and identify this is when I'm moving towards a recommendation for a new and expensive drug, as is very common. I will bring up these are often very expensive drugs to the patient and kind of lay that out that fact and ask broadly if they think this will be in, you know, an issue offer to provide whatever prior authorization inquiries we can and really try and, and say, like, we, we want to assess the burden on you ahead of time, both from what you tell us and what we can learn about the actual price tag of the drug to you before making this treatment decision. And then that's really as, as far as it goes. What happens more often than not is patients, and I think patients feel obligated to just do whatever their doctor tells them. And then I think that when I make a recommendation for drug, regardless of this kind of maybe feeble attempt to elicit patients' worries and concerns about the financial aspects and really make sure that they're on board with this and can't afford, you know, it's always just whatever you say, <laughs> let's, let's go, let's go forward with it. And I often feel a little bit like, you know, what else can I do? And then if it is the medical recommendation that I would be making, and then the patient tells me that they want to go forward with it, whatever the financial cost, then we're often doing that. And then I feel like I'm 
contributing to the problem because that's in a lot of cases, undoubtedly is then incurring a high financial burden on these patients. The first question that I posed to my interviewees is, why is it important to study financial toxicity? If our patients are not taking their medication because they are not able to afford it, or they're not coming to their appointments because they don't have, you know, they had to sell their car to be able to continue to pay for their care. So that's why I think it is very important for the trainees and for all the physicians, I would say, not just the trainees, to be able to understand what this is, to be able to be comfortable talking about these topics, to be able to even, you know, pick out if a patient, because patients may not want to bring it up because it's considered to be a stigma sometimes. And so for a physician to be able to recognize the signs, like you yourself mentioned something about, you know, patients asking, can I get my medicine from Mexico? Or I have been asked that multiple multiple times. And that has given me that said way to say, okay, do you need any help? Can I connect you to anything? So, so all of those things I think are very important for physicians to understand, again, that they cannot practice in vacuum. They need to understand the patient's context in terms of what kind of burden they're subjecting the patient and the family to by recommending treatments that may be, you know, very expensive and have a high cost burden for the patient. I wanted to ask you, in your practice right now today in 2021, what do you think is one of the main problems, the main issues causing patients to have exceedingly large financial hardship or out-of-pocket expenses? So I don't think there is a singular cause behind why patients are experiencing high costs despite having insurance. I think it's a combination of factors, and each one of those factors really has been worsening in a way that has resulted in greater costs for patients. So the first and the most obvious is that the cost of the treatment that we prescribe patients has been increasing. It's been increasing dramatically over the past few decades and even just over the past few years. And in fact, every new drug that gets approved gets approved at a price tag that's higher than the one before it in class. And so we're seeing drugs that are entering the market today with an average monthly price tag you know, greater than $10,000 a month. And that's just for drug alone. So the price of the treatments that we're prescribing is increasing. I think the second reason that contributes to cost for patients is that cost sharing is increasing. And what I mean by that is that when it comes to insurance design, insurance companies have been shifting a greater portion of this higher price tag back towards patients. So deductibles have increased. In North Carolina, the average deductible this year is well over $3,000. And keep in mind that median income in North Carolina is under $60,000 a year. So that's a huge chunk of gross income, actually. So deductibles are increasing. Co-pays have increased. We're seeing a greater preponderance of tiered formularies where a lot of the oral chemotherapies that we prescribe fall into the higher tiers, which means higher co-pays for our patients. So the second is that cost sharing is increasing so that patients have a greater bill to pay for their treatment despite having insurance. And then there's a third reason as well, and that is we continue to, I think, fall short in how we can talk to our patients about these costs, include costs as a part of decision-making, and link patients to appropriate resources. So I really think it's those three reasons together that have led to the situation we're in right now, where costs are impacting our patients' lives. In your personal opinion, Dr. Kara, what are the best strategies to mitigate or decrease financial hardship in patients? Are there 
things that we could do in the clinic? Are there things that require more systemic change at the, you know, either state or federal level that might require, you know, collective or political action in your view, or are these things parallel? What can be done? Yeah, I think you need to have sort of a multi-pronged strategy. I mean, you have to be able to reach out to each and every stakeholder that is involved in this. So there can be interventions that can be done at the patient level, for instance, increasing the awareness about this issue. So I remember talking to one of the patient advocates at an alliance meeting, and she said, you know, you guys should have like displays or brochures saying that financial toxicity is a problem that you may face with your cancer treatment. Please don't be shy in talking about it. I mean, something like, you know, this again, to counter the stigma that is associated with talking about these issues. So I think from a patient perspective, increasing awareness about this, increasing the health literacy about insurance terminology, about costs and things like that, having patient navigators that can help patients go through their insurance challenges and institutional challenges. I think those are all some of the things that can help at the patient level. At the provider level, again, increasing awareness, making sure that people are comfortable talking about some of these things, being able to develop screening tools and decision aids that are able to also pull in the financial angle. So again, if you know NCCN evidence blocks do have affordability as one of the criteria. So things like that. And I think the major thing is a shift in attitudes. You know, we have to be able to avoid low value cancer treatments because we have to understand that every treatment that we recommend is going to have some burden on the patient. So, you know, it's very important that as providers, we realize and we minimize those kind of low value treatments and focus on providing well-rounded but affordable care to our patients. And then obviously there are, you know, things that can be done at the institutional level or system or policy level in terms of, like you said, increasing price transparency, you know, policies to help decrease the overall drug prices, things like that, I think can help in a systematic fashion to be able to address this problem. Most of the education that we get as trainees or fellows regarding, you know, financial hardship and this kind of thing is usually limited to, you know, try to stick to evidence-based medicine as much as possible, try not to overprescribe, which is entirely correct. But, you know, in light of these new findings, in light of the fact that even if you do stick to evidence-based medicine and you prescribe things correctly, your patient may still be overcharged, you know, through this change that you, you describe of the hospital change overcharging the, the payer and then that leading to, you know, higher premiums. Would you think that the, this approach of just personally trying to mitigate financial hardship, do you think it has any legs? Do you think it has any, in the current climate, to be effective in tackling financial hardship? So I think that gets to the third point that I made, the third factor that contributes to high patient costs, and that's our responsibility as clinicians towards our patients and having this discussion, right? So, you know, back in the dark ages when I was a fellow um, in oncology, right, we were taught exactly what you said is stick with the evidence, right? If you stick with the evidence, you're doing right by your patient and the story. Well, turns out that's not the end of the story. And it turns out that we can absolutely, just like you said, stick with the evidence and still cause our patients significant financial harm, even if it's the right clinical decision for them. So what do we do? How do we balance that? I'm going to give you a really stark example of how that how that's happening today. And it's based off a groundbreaking study that was done a few years ago now by Dr. Stacey Dizetzina uh, back when she was at UNC, published in JCO. And what she and her team looked at was the relationship between adherence to imatinib in patients with a new diagnosis of CML and out-of-pocket cost for that drug. 
And your listeners know better than I, because, you know, I'm, I'm just a simple-minded GI oncologist. I'm pretty sure I don't even know what CML stands for. But you, you, you and your listeners know better than I that imatinib has changed the face of treatment for that disease, right? And yet, what she found was that patients who had copays that were higher than $53 a month were 70% more likely to be non-adherent to imatinib. And that's within six months of a new diagnosis of CML. That's dramatic. That's really dramatic. And that tells me that even though there's this drug that will at least extend their lives, if not, you know, I don't use this term lightly in oncology, but if not save their lives, right? Compared to not having the drug, a copay of around 50 bucks a month could induce non-adherence to it. So again, if you were just to follow the evidence and stop there, you'd be doing the right thing for the patient. You'd be prescribing the right drug, but the patient would go to the pharmacy, pick up the drug, not be able to afford it, not take the drug. So now what do you do? And this is where we have to take it a step further. And we have to think of our responsibility as not just trying to attenuate the patient's physical toxicity, but also trying to impact and reduce the patient's financial toxicity. So, you know, we think about the toxicity that our patients may experience as a result of imatinib in terms of symptoms. Well, one of those symptoms is cost, right? And so what can we do as clinicians who are prescribing that drug? Well, we can ask the patient, first of all, hey, were you able to afford that drug? Second, if not, right, connect the patients to our pharmacists or social workers or financial counselors, all of whom might be able to connect the patient then to financial assistance programs or coupons or ways to help afford the drug. I don't know what all those resources are myself, right? Because I am still focused on, you know, what is the right treatment for this patient as a whole, but I am absolutely attuned to the people around me who know how to help the patient with the financial questions that they may have. And that has to be a part of our job. Do you think it is important to teach trainees, you know, medical students, residents and fellows, particularly in the fields of hematology and oncology, about financial hardship, financial toxicity, and how do you think this might be best achieved? Number one, I do believe it's very important that our trainees know about this big problem. It's no more a small issue. I often call it, it's the elephant in the room. We need to give the elephant a place in our boardroom to have that discussion. We need to bring that elephant into the centrality of our discussion because cancer is not just a straightforward disease that a person goes through, but it's a disease that a family goes through. It's a disease that the society goes through. It's a social issue. So I think financial toxicity, the cost implication of cancer care, hematological care should be brought into the training programs. How best can we do that by having such discussions that you and I are having now? I'm sure your listeners would today go back into their hospitals while they start ordering investigations would pause and think. And I hope they would just not pause and think, but would take the next step and go around and asking others, you know, how much X costing, how much does Y cost? And maybe even ask the patients, how much of out-of-pocket expenditure are they having for their monthly trip to get their botasomib shot or their linalidomide refill? In your personal opinion, you know, when we are seeing patients in the clinic, I think, you know, I'm speaking for myself, and I think most trainees and most of our colleagues in the hematology and quality world, we see a new patient in the EMR that's coming up in our list, and then perhaps we see what insurance they have, right? Do they have Advantage? Do they have Lucas Brasil? Are they uninsured LSF pay, Medicare, Medicaid? And then we go, hmm. And then if they're uninsured or they have Medicaid, we call the social worker or the financial planner, and we go and do our thing. It's not uncommon for patients to ask us, okay, doctor, you're going to give me RBD for my myeloma, or you're going to give me, you know, ibrutinib for my CLL, how much is this going to cost me? And we go, I don't know, we'll call a pharmacy, we'll talk to the insurance, 
uh, to the insurers, and then you can talk to social worker and see if there's any payer or pharmacy payer plan or financial aid. What, in your opinion, is the main barrier or the main barriers for this kind of gap in knowledge for the physician? What is stopping the doctor in the clinic of knowing if I prescribe you ibrutinib, it's going to cost you this much. If I prescribe you lorenolidomide, it's going to cost you this much per month. And the barrier for that specific knowledge is the variability in, in coverage. And it's now that I, I know how much you are on the fellow level involved in these kind of directly, you know, things always happen, you know, between directly and over your head. But now I'm much more directly privy to the prior authorization determinations and the coverage determinations for my patients, because then it will come back to me when we determine what the copay will be for a patient going forward to then give an okay to proceed with a prescription, presuming that once I have this knowledge, then I can discuss with the patient to, again, make sure that that copay will be agreeable for them before giving the okay to fill the prescription, which I've already, which I've already entered. And it's, it's hugely variable for patients with different commercial insurers. And I just never know. And there are some patients where it's like they, you know, they putting all of our biases and preconceptions on the patient, there'd be someone who looks like they don't have great coverage based on where their job is, for example, and I'm concerned, and then their copay will come back as $0. And they'll get the drug completely free. And then there will be someone who I know is a very high means and, you know, could self-pay if they wanted to, but hey, they also have great insurance coverage and they will have $0 for a drug like abiraterone or enzalutamide. And then you'll have patients uh, of who look similarly and it looks like they've got a relatively comparable insurer and then they will come back with thousands upon thousands of dollars, like a $2,000 monthly copay. And there's just no way for me to know ahead of time without sending the prescription over to the pharmacy and then other people doing several days of work to make that determination before I can give that patient the actual price. So to get back to your question, like the barrier is that there's huge differences between patients, insurers, and uh, it's not information which, as far as I can tell, like is available at all ahead of time until someone has sent the actual prescription to the prescriber. Exactly. And ideally, we would want to know ahead of time, right? When we sit with the patient, we want to know, hey, you know, we can give you a gratitude, we can give you a salutamide. Perhaps clinical efficacy in your particular case, I think would be the same, but this is going to cost you $100 per month and this is going to cost you 800 Do you see a foreseeable future where that happens, where we are able to know ahead of time and sit down with a patient, knowledge in hand and tell them, you know, this is going to cost you this much? Or do you think that we may be able to do single cell genomics, but we cannot be able to bridge that gap in knowledge? Well, if the reforms that are being talked about in Congress right now were to come to fruition and there were to be, say, an out-of-pocket maximum placed in Medicare Part D, then even if I don't know the details of the different Medicare Part D plans, then I'd still at least be able to tell the patient that this will probably cost you $2,000. That's the, the proposed out-of-pocket cap. This will probably cost you $2,000 over the course of this first year. And it won't go higher than that, but it probably will get to, you know, to 2000 for patients with you know, Medicare Part D as their primary coverage. And that would be at least a step forward because that, then that would be something that would be knowable beforehand. You could at least be able to give people, give patients the ceiling on what the cost would be. We'd like to thank all our listeners for tuning in. 